We are continuing in our summer in the Psalms, and our sermon this morning is from Psalm 19. And of all of the attributes of God, as we think about God, you know, we talk about the attributes of God, the communicable, the incommunicable attributes, those are theological words, meaning that there are some things about God that we get, right? Certain aspects of God's character and attributes that we get, and then there are some that we don't get, and one of them that we don't get is God's invisibility, right? God's invisible. That is an attribute that we certainly don't have. And of all of God's attributes, his invisibility may be and probably is more of a stumbling block to faith than any other of God's attributes. Um, All of the different theories of God, his person, his character, what God is like, could ostensibly be settled once and for all if he just came right out of hiding, right? That's kind of the idea. Like, why doesn't God just show himself? show himself to who we are. The H.G. Wells novel, if you're familiar with H.G. Wells, The Invisible Man, uh, illustrates pretty well how challenging it is to have a relationship with someone if you're invisible. It's not easy. Now for The Invisible Man, it's fine because he doesn't like people. But God wants to be in relationship with us. God wants to be known. He wants to reveal his character for the invisible man in the H.G. Wells novel, he relies on his hiddenness. But God wants to reveal himself. The question is, where should we look? If we serve an invisible God, where should we look? Well, Psalm 19 has some answers for us, so let's go ahead and read it. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork, day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a, a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is pure, sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins and let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Father, now we thank you for this word here in Psalm 19. You are hidden in one sense, but also you reveal yourself 
in other ways. Help us now as we move through this passage to see those ways in which you are revealed, that we might understand you better, that we might proclaim you better, and we might live more faithfully. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, as we read through our passage, you should have seen three things. One, that God's works reveal him. God's words reveal him. And a transformed life reveal him. What Psalm 19 reveals is even though God's invisible, he's really not hidden. That may be hard to square, hidden, invisible. God's invisible, but he's not hidden. He is clearly seen, number one, in the wordless revelation of creation. Another way to say it is um, God's works reveal him. Verse one says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the works of his hands. I mean, just pause on that language for a second. Heavens declare, skies proclaim, right? It would seem that God has made us in such a way that we can understand things simply by looking at them, right? Heavens declare, skies proclaim. Clearly, we've been made in such a way that simply beholding certain things we can discern certain information. For example, a gorilla's muscular strength tells you of his incredible power. There's no words, nothing verbal, nothing audible, but as you look and behold the awesome power of a gorilla, you know that this is one strong animal. One look at the Hoover Dam tells you of the marvel of engineering that went into its construction. And if you've ever been there in person, it looks far grander than that. I wanna say the Hoover Dam from bottom to top is seven or 800 feet tall. And the size of the sequoias in the high Sierras in California tell you that these are some of the oldest living organisms on the planet without ever saying a word. Charles Spurgeon once said that Creation is nature's Bible, and the sun, moon, and stars are its first pages. Man walking erect, he continues, was evidently made to scan the skies and be reverent before his environment. Why? I just, you think about that, right? All of the animals walking on all fours, but man is made upright, and we can look upward. We look up at the skies, why? Because the skies are a 24-hour worship service. Worshiping God, all you have to do is look up. The heavens are praising God, like a worshiping congregation, in the same way that we come together and we worship and we sing. Well, that's what's happening 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. The skies are worshiping God round the clock. To put it simply, the world witnesses to God. It is wordless revelation about an invisible God who is actually not hidden, but has revealed himself. 
The creation manifests the glory of its creator. If you have a subscription to Amazon Prime, go home tonight and watch the Ken Burns documentary, America's Best Idea, The National Parks. It's, it's, it's fantastic. It's about the formation of the national park system. And if for, watch it if for nothing else but the visual eloquence of Yosemite and Yellowstone and the Grand Canyon and all the other national parks, or as John Muir called them, nature's cathedrals. It's interesting that in the middle of our greatest metropolises, we have parks. I mean, just think about New York City and Central Park, right? It is some of the most expensive real estate on the planet, ostensibly, and right in the middle, there are hundreds and hundreds of acres taken up with what could be described, at least from a commercial aspect, as useless property. But it's not useless. Gerard von Rad, in his famous Genesis commentary from 50 years ago, said that we make gardens in the middle of urban centers as a sort of echo of Eden. That in each of us there is a longing for that fellowship that we once had in the Garden of Eden, and so we preserve spaces in all of our developed cities for parks and sort of gardens of nature, because in some ways it's not the skyscrapers that speak of the glory of God, but the natural places, the trees, the skies, the grass, the ponds, the seas, the oceans, those things. Because God has actually chosen to reveal himself in nature in a very profound and eloquent way. I mean, think about it. Why do the outdoors, the mountains and the oceans, the sun, moon, and stars move us so deeply? I mean, I don't know about you, but I am moved deeply by a beautiful sunset or a beautiful sunrise or the ocean, the crashing of the waves on the shore. It's moving. At least it moves us as deeply, if not deeper, than great art. And why is that? Because every time we're beholding them, we are beholding or witnessing, as Tim Keller says, the meaningful work of an artist's hands. That's what the creation is. Now, this is what theologians call natural revelation. It is nonverbal communication that there is a God, that the world is not an accidental collocation of molecules, but the meaningful work of an artist's hands. It's a word from God without sound. I mean, look at verse 2. Day after day, they pour forth speech, they being the sun, the moon, and the stars. I just pause on that for a moment. Day after day, the sun, the moon, and the stars are pouring forth speech. Night after night, they are revealing knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them, yet... Their voice goes out through all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In other words, there is no excuse for atheism. There is no valid argument that God doesn't exist. And Paul makes this very point in Romans 1. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And get this in verse 19. Listen to this. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. There's no excuse. No sophisticated, skeptical argument can stand up to a blade of grass. Because all of nature is declaring the glory of God and his eternal power. So when you say, and when you think about, well, what about those people who have never heard about God? What about those people who don't know about God? Psalm 19 and Romans 1 tell us those people don't exist. There is no one who is, is with excuse because of how God has clearly testified of his existence through the, through the creation. However, because, as Romans 1 says, we suppress the knowledge, people suppress the knowledge of God and unrighteousness, God's nonverbal communication of himself through creation is easily misinterpreted. So we need something more. We need not just God's works, but we need God's very words. Number two, God's words reveal him. And now the focus is on the law of the Lord. And the Hebrew word used here is Torah. I think that the accent mark is on the end of that word, Torah. And Torah doesn't narrowly just mean the law of God, like the rules, but it just means all of God's instruction. All right? So Torah means instruction. And it really is a reference to when the Jews thought about Torah, they, they thought, yes, about the Ten Commandments, but they also thought about the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the prophets, and the Psalms. In other words, Torah, the law of God, was all of God's testimony in Scripture. Basically, the word of God. And verse 7 says this, the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes the simple wise. The precepts of the Lord are right. It rejoices the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether, and more are they to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, and sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there's great reward. As we mentioned just a minute ago, the difference between natural revelation, there's also something called special revelation. Special revelation, if general revelation goes out to the whole world, special revelation is the non, um, natural revelation is the nondescript message about God from nature, but special revelation is God's word. And it comes to people who listen to that word. So in special revelation, God reveals himself not by his works, 
but by his words. And there's a connection, okay? If God's existence is behind the creation, his character and authority are behind his instruction. And Psalm 19 wants us to think about those two things together, creation and the word. Because the creator of the universe is the same Lord who gives us his word. And it's the word of God that gives life to the soul. I mean, when you think about it, when you look at the first five books of the Bible, why is it that a book about the creation Genesis is followed immediately by God's law? Because of the universal nature of God's character and his instructions for all humanity. But the one that made the earth that all people live on has also given us his instructions to guide human life to bless us, to give life to our souls. My father, who is a pastor who died a year ago this month, told me in my teens, my dad wasn't really big on like, active mentoring. I mean, he mentored me in a lot of ways. Uh, and so he, there, there were not a lot of, son, let's go for a walk. I'm gonna tell you what life is all about. My dad, my dad wasn't, he, was, he wasn't, conscientious that way as a father. There were a lot of good things I learned from my dad, but he, there weren't a lot of talks like that. But there was one time, probably in my late teens, where my father told me the greatest thing a man could ever have and be in possession of, and he told me it was knowledge of the word of God. And, and that stuck with me. I mean, it, it, must have, it must have made some type of impression in me because it wasn't long after, long after that that I felt like I wanted to be a preacher. I wanted to be able to communicate this thing that I had also come over the course of several years after that conversation to believe this was incredibly valuable. And that's, I think, what we're seeing here exactly in the book of, in Psalms 19, is that the word of God communicates to us not just information about God, but communicates to us God himself. That the word of God is communing to us God himself. And the New Testament picks up on this idea that the word of God is life, okay? James 1.18, and this is a remarkable sentence, and we, we don't have a slide for it, but this is what James 1.18 says. He chose to give us birth, that, that is new birth. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creation, of all that he's, he's created. The life that we have in the Holy Spirit comes to us by the preached word. So when we talk about the spirit giving life, right, it's, it's important for us not to make like a dichotomy as if, you know, people who are all about the word are like dead and dreary, but people who are about the spirit have life. I mean, that's, kind of, that's, that's sort of a, a silly dichotomy because how does the spirit give life to the soul? Through the word of God. It is the word that is employed by the Holy Spirit as a means of grace to transform us and change us. Now, the word by itself, without the Spirit's dead, we know that. But the Spirit uses the word of God. It is using the word of God. 
You know, and this, this may sort of be like the Achilles heel of churches and denominations that talk a whole lot about the spirit but are anemic when it comes to biblical preaching, right? Because you just can't have one without the other. You can't, you know, talk a whole lot about what the spirit is doing and, and somehow neglect the word because they go together, okay? The spirit is moving and transforming us through the word. The spirit moves us. The spirit gives us life, transforms us through the word. 1 Peter 1.23 just backs up this thought. You've been born again, not of perishable, but of imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. So even the New Testament's own testimony is you've been given life through the word of God. That is the life-changing word of God that has transformed you. And this brings us to our last point, which is that God is revealed not only by his works and by his words, but by transformed lives. Like how is the world seeing God's existence and his eternal power? Yes, through creation. Yes, through the word. But often and most poignantly through transformed lives because well, sinners don't read the Bible and their sinful hearts don't allow them to interpret creation accurately all the time. And so transformed life reveals God. Verse 11 through 14, by the Lord's instruction your servant is warned in keeping them there's great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. And these last four verses are essentially a transformed life. The conversion of God's revelation on the human heart and what a life looks like that has been affected by God's complete revelation. And then they themselves become a sort of proclamation. Just like the stars and the skies are declaring and proclaiming the glory of God, a transformed life is declaring and proclaiming the glory of God to a dying and unbelieving world. And so the ministry of the word on the human heart of those that believe is twofold, right? It keeps us on track once we've been converted through warning and promise, warning and promise, warning and promise. That's what he's talking about. By, by your word, your servant is warned, right? Warning and promise. And this is what makes Christianity different from, say, I don't know, karma, because it warns you, you know, karma warns you of nothing specific. It says in the next life, you'll be re reincarnated according to like how well you maintained some standard that no one, nobody knows what that is. So I just want to say as Christians, and listen, listen up here, if your neighbor's sleeping, nudge him in the ribs. Uh, don't say karma this, karma that as Christians. Don't say it, all right? Because karma is actually a very cruel idea. It essentially says that you're going to be judged based on a standard that you've never seen. It's really, I mean, it, it sounds good, right? Because like, on, on like the basic level, it's what comes around, goes around. But, but in reality, it says that there's a standard that you don't really know what that standard is because it hasn't really been revealed. You can't read it anywhere. You can sort of kind of like intuit it in your, in your heart. But at the end of the day, like you could come back as a lion or a king or a cockroach. And I, I know that sounds funny and crass or whatever, but I just want to say like, God has not been so cruel. 
is not that cruel. He is kind and gracious and loving because he has given us a standard of moral righteousness, which is a transcript of his own very character. And he says, essentially, I'll write it down for you. Here. <laughs> I think, what more could you want, right? Like, could you write it down? I mean, some, I had a conversation this week with someone about their exercise and diet, and I said, can you write it down this morning? They said, here you go, and they gave me a little envelope with, right? Like, God has written it down for us. He's written it down. The, words, the word of God is a transcript of God's moral character, and by it, we're kept from presumptuous sins. Our sins don't have dominion over us. I don't want to drag on forever, but I just want to wrap this up and say, we'll never be transformed if we never open our Bibles, all right? Like, the Bible, the scriptures are there to transform us. Romans 12, don't be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it's through the word of God that the spirit does its work of transformation on our minds and on our hearts. The mind is renewed through the word that gives life because it trains us in righteousness. Trains us to follow after God's precepts. It trains us to think like God. It trains us to feel and think God's thoughts after him. That's what the word of God does. The purpose of a righteous life is not earning your way to heaven, but something we don't often think of. It's a revelation of God. Because the greatest revelation of God to a sinner is not creation or even the word of God, because they don't read it, but the transformed lives of the people of God. So if that seems like a heavy, like heavy pressure, it is. I don't know how to get around that, right? Like Jesus in the New Testament, when he's teaching the disciples, he doesn't say, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and then he gives them this challenge and then says, but no pressure. He doesn't do that, right? Your lives, your transformed lives are the only revelation of God many people will ever see. So yeah, there's some pressure there. Because we're the people of God. We're not earning our righteousness to try to get into heaven. But there is a response. There is the impetus, right? The imperative of a response of a transformed, of, of a redeemed life that's, that God desires us to live as his people out into the world. Because by doing that, we reveal his very existence and being. Amen. Father God, we do thank you that you have revealed to us your very essence in your son Jesus. That though the world thinks you're hidden, you have, you have disclosed your, your character, your existence, and your, your very moral nature to us through the word of God, by the power of the spirit, and we as your people you call to live transformed lives that you might continue to be revealed to a lost and dying world. And Father, help us now, because we can't do it on our own. We know that. The message today is not so try harder. The message is without your grace, oh God, we can be nothing, we can do nothing. We are nothing in and of ourselves, and so we cry out for your grace to be living epistles, 
that other people may read us and behold the wonder and glory of God through your son Jesus. We pray these things in his name, amen.